Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Samsung's Jennifer Batty about growing the electronics giant's fast channels business across Europe. Amconry Entertainment's Robert Price on the Abacus Media Rights owner's expansion plans. Director Simon West and producer Miguel Menendez on RTVE Amazon's seafaring epic Boundless and Sipur's Amelia Schenker on the Israeli Prodco's new reality dating format, Hungry for Love. Former RTL CBS Asia and Hook executive Jennifer Batty resurfaced at Samsung Electronics last month as head of content acquisition for the South Korean technology giant's free ad-supported streaming TV service, Samsung TV+. Batty was at MIPCOM in Cannes, where the company announced a string of deals with the likes of Fremantle for a dedicated Jamie Oliver fast channel, with Off the Fence for one called Destination Nature, and another with ZDF Studios for documentary brand Terra X. She spoke to me about the differences between Fast and Avod, why subscription streamers are introducing their own ad-supported tiers, the kinds of content partnerships she's looking for, and the lessons learned from the closure of Hook in 2020. Jennifer, thanks very much for joining us. Um, you've just started at Samsung Electronics as head of content acquisitions at the company's uh, free ad-supported streaming TV or fast service, Samsung TV+. Plus. So congratulations on your new role. And um, for those not familiar with Samsung TV+, Plus, could you tell us a little bit more about it and, and what exactly you're aiming to do? Perfect. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, join today. This is great. Very excited. Um, I've been with Samsung TV Plus for about six or seven weeks now, um, heading up content acquisitions for Europe. We are in 16 countries across Europe. Um, Samsung TV Plus come, um, app comes preloaded on all, I think it's 2017 models, TVs, tablets, mobile phones, and newer. So it is offering up free entertainment through the Samsung, uh, Samsung consumers, um, whether it's fast channels or video on demand, and we're just looking to entertain our consumers that are investing in the Samsung products. Um, some people in the business, they're still confused about the difference between fast channels and uh, AVOD. So can you just explain that, you know, and how the two facets of the business fit into your own? Yes, so it is. So fast channels are really about it's a linear channel viewing experience. Um, it is funded by ads, um, ad supported. So it is an, an advertisement model there. Um, but it's exactly like what you're used to watching linear channels. It's scheduled over 24 hours. You come in. There's a certain program that's already re there, ready for you to watch. Whereas Avon is advertised supported video on demand. You come in, you pick what you want to watch, when you want to watch it, where you want to start. Um, but again, it's all is also ad supported. So both of these are free experiences for the consumer, but we look to monetize from an advertising world. And you've just unveiled a whole string of new channels, partnerships with the likes of Fremantle, Off the Fence, ZDF Studios. So, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about those. Yep, all very, very exciting projects. Um, in the UK, we just launched the Jamie Oliver channel, which is exclusively on Samsung TV+. Plus. It's a partnership with Fremantle. Um, Jamie Oliver is... Uh, in the UK, he's a much-loved um, celebrity chef. I think he's more than just a celebrity chef. He's really changed the way that people look at food, um, whether it's in schools or at home. And uh, we're super excited. So it's a 24-hour channel featuring the best of Jamie Oliver. Um, and then, and that ex that's exclusive on Samsung TV+. Plus. Exclusivity is something that we're looking for going forward. We really want to be the home of certain things and really own the brand and the, the content so that consumers know exactly where to come when they want to watch something that is familiar to them, like Jamie. Um, in Germany, we launched uh, the Terra X channel with um, ZDF Studios. It is one of the biggest brands, um, documentary brands in Germany, and something that is loved, again, like Jamie in the UK. It's a brand that has uh, been watched for many years and has a very strong built-in audience, and so we've just launched that. It's doing really well for us. Very excited to see how we can expand that partnership also. Um, and then we have also launched uh, with Off the Fence, uh, Destination Natural. I'm not going to, I never say it correctly with the language. Um, and also Wilder Planet, which is, um, depending on the country, is the name. 
so for the uh, channel in France, we have it's fully dubbed. Um, it's documentaries coming from uh, wildlife documentaries that's coming from off the fence. Again, you know, I think when you're looking at wildlife programming, off the fence is where everybody's gone for decades and so again we're super excited about the partnership that we have with them in France and also in the other territories that we're in um, and again we'll continue to launch more channels like that with them as partners and other other studios. You mentioned exclusivity there so tell us a little bit about the commercial model because I guess with you know a lot of these ad supported services there's a share of advertising revenues but presumably you're paying a premium there are you to, to have that exclusivity? It really depends on the partnership. So we are, we like to think that we want to, we can be as creative as we can to set up partnerships for owned and operated channels and third party channels that are financially beneficial for everybody. Um, you know, we have inventory share, we have revenue share, we also do acquire content, specific content that is just for an owned and operated channel that is just like um, our sort of our old school way of acquiring content. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, mentioning old school, because uh, a lot of people look at what's happening in the fast channel space and it's, you know, they, they compare it to, to linear TV. It's a lean back experience, isn't it? And uh, I don't know, just a more efficient, potentially, and, and, and uh, targeted way of, of reaching consumers with programmatic advertising. I think so, definitely. I think... Um not just from an advertising point of view, but also from a consumer's point of view. You know, when you go into a service that's an on-demand service, I know myself, I can spend 20 minutes, half an hour, 45 minutes just looking at different shows and I don't know what I want to watch, I just want to have something in the background. So fast channels are sort of readdressing that, uh, what we were sort of have been missing a little bit. Um, you know, we want to lean in, we want it to be easy viewing and that's exactly what the fast channels offer. You know, a lot of fast channels are very much, um, they're IP specific, so it might be lifestyle or it might be a specific brand um, or a specific talent that that features. You know, we have the Baywatch channel, we have American Idol, we have all sorts of different um, IP channels and it's you come in because it's familiar to you you enjoy watching it it's easy watching you sit down you relax you're not spending you know half your evening trying to decide what to watch and then go oh, now I gotta go to bed there's no there's no time to watch anything so I think the fast channels really address that aspect of how people are enjoying um, entertainment now how concerned should, should linear channels be? I mean, you're competing in some senses, well, you are competing for eyeballs and, uh, uh, you know, you're competing for that same ad money that they rely upon as well. I think that the industry is evolving. I think that free-to-air channels uh, will continue to grow the way that they have over decades. I think that... Um, we're just offering people a, di a slightly different opportunity to watch content. Um, you know, we've had pay TV for many, many years, and maybe pay TV is slightly consolidating a little bit more than what it is was previously. Um, we look to partner with the free-to-air broadcasters and pay TV broadcasters to look at the content they have. How can we bring that into the fast channel or AVOD environment? So we like to see ourselves as we complement the other areas of media. Um, so I don't think, I think that, you know, when pay TV launched, everybody went, oh no, that's going to be the end of you know, free to air. Well, here we are, how many sort of decades later, and we're just continuing to evolve how people consume content and watch content, and broadcasters can all sit next to each other, which is great. In thinking about Jamie Oliver or Baywatch, obviously you've got hours and hours of, of programming <laughs> to, to rely upon. Off the Fence has a huge catalogue of, of, of nature programming, but you know, what about the rest of the market, you know, and what about sort of smaller distributors, IP owners? I mean, how much content do you really need to set up your own fast channel? I think that as the fast channel business is growing and is maturing, I think that we're seeing that change. I think that uh, the, at the first sort of start of fast channels, you could kind of go out there with a limited amount of content and program a 24-hour channel with a very high repeat rate. Um, but that was that was okay because it was a new introduction to the, for the audience. I think today we're looking at a slightly more sophisticated audience. They are looking for a very similar similar experience as when they're watching, say, a free-to-air linear channel. So I think the 
volume of content has is, is increasing. I think also it's really important to be introducing something new to the Fast Channel viewers um, you know, on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly basis. New titles, new things to excitement, whether it's a new season um, or it might be a new series that a talent has done. But it's, it's important now that we continue to grow the Fast Channel ex viewing experience the same way that pay TV evolved and the way, same way that um, free-to-air has evolved over the years. And what do you say to distributors or IP owners who, again, are a little bit concerned about their their legacy rights deals? And you know, it's complicated, isn't it? Making sure that you keep your 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 previous clients or even existing clients happy, whilst also going direct to consumer. That is a very interesting question, and I think it's something that, as producers are producing content, it's about looking at what are the rights that are being cleared and ensuring that we're clearing all of the rights and future-proofing um, rights going forward. Is you know, if you think back, how many years ago, who knew that we would be watching content on a mobile phone? So it really is about protecting the rights that they have and, and future-proofing them. But I think that for um, I, again, I think we all sit very comfortably next to each other, um, and I think that content, I, I don't think that content owners really need to worry that much about it. I think that they have relationships in place that have thrived over the years and will continue to thrive, and it's just ensuring that um, they have the rights that are able to be licensed to the fast channels. Um, Netflix, obviously introducing an ad-funded model, Disney Plus, others as well. Um, it's, it's partly a response to falling subscriber numbers, but uh, also out of recognition that consumers want more choice. You know, what, what do you make of those moves? I honestly am surprised it's taken as long as it has. Uh, previously, in my previous role at Hook, in Asia, which was a joint venture with Singtel, Sony, and Warner Brothers, we were one of the first to launch an AVOD um, platform alongside an SVOD platform. And it really was about, you know, what are consumers looking for? Some people are very comfortable watching commercials. They enjoy them. They don't mind. They would prefer to watch a commercial than pay a subscription cost. Um, and I think right now, when you look at the way that the economy is around the world, um, and the cost of the different subscription services that are out there, for some people they're much more comfortable with an AVOD service, watching a couple of minutes of advertising, but saving that money that they would have paid for the subscription. So I think that it, it was just sort of a matter of time as things evolved. I, I sort of wish that maybe it had happened a little bit earlier, because it wouldn't have been so hard to secure the AVOD rights um, many years ago at Hook if, if other people were doing it. But um, I'm not surprised that it's the way that, it, that we're going forward. Netflix has a very prominent position on the uh, Samsung remote controls. So uh, now that you're going to be going after the same business, I suppose, in a more uh, pronounced way, is that going to become an issue? No, I don't think so. And again, you know, we have partnerships, um, whether it's an integrated apps on the our smart TVs or on the mobiles or the tablets. We have very strong partnerships with, with Netflix and others, and those will continue to grow and thrive. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are out there advertising and there's a lot of people that are looking for things. So I think that we'll work very closely and we're, we'll sit very comfortably next to each other. Given your background at RTL CBS Asia, um, you know, what do you make of the US studios shift to streaming over the past few years and how do you seeing that playing out, having spent a period of time sort of ring fencing their own content and withdrawing it from international licensing? There's tentative suggestions that some may be easing up and, you know, becoming more flexible on rights deals. I think it's a, uh, as I said, I said, I think it's a really interesting and exciting time for the industry right now. And I think we say that sort of every three or four years, but it really seems interesting now, um, with exactly as you said. And I think that the studios are also understanding that they, 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 you can, you can. Um, sell their content to partners in the territory, having more eyeballs and giving more um, opportunity for shows to gain an audience is, is very important. Um, and sometimes just doing that behind a paywall is very difficult. I think though also along that kind of same note, local content is really important. So we see, you know, we look at as Samsung TV Plus in all of our territories, we look to dub or subtitle into all of the local languages. We look at in France and in Germany, you know, it's French language content or German language content. And if we're bringing content in from outside, we dub it. It's very important. So I think also the studios are seeing that their audiences in these territories also are really looking for 
localization and local content. So I think that, you know, they may not see a need for as keeping as much stuff as their own behind the paywall. I mean, it's really interesting because the streaming boom was supercharged by COVID lockdowns, but uh, Hook, where you previously worked in, in Singapore, as you referenced a joint venture, SVOD service primarily from uh, Singtel, Warner Brothers and Sony Pictures Television. That went out of business just before the pandemic struck, however, and, and they blamed that at the time, I think, on you know content providers going direct to consumers themselves and a lack of willingness um, among customers in, in, in emerging markets, at least, to sort of pay those subscription fees. So what, what did you take away from that experience? A lot of gray hair, um, <laughs> but on a more serious note, you know, it was very unfortunate that uh, we ended up closing the doors and turning the lights off of Hook. We were very successful in the territories that we were in. We were number one in Indonesia and in the top in uh, Philippines, Thailand, and um, in India. We had we were the first one to do an app within an app with Disney Plus Hotstar, that at the time was just Hotstar, and um, and also in Singapore we were very successful. So we we kind of left on the top of our game. I guess it's good to go out on the top of your game. It is unfortunate. It is exactly you know it was a difficult time. You know, we were in a number outside of Singapore, we were in emerging markets. Um, the consumers were not used to paying for things from, on a monthly basis. So we were very creative and, and um, unique in what we offered. We tried to do 24-hour subscriptions for limited pricing in territories where people were used to purchasing things one-off. So a single cigarette or a single sachet of shampoo. Um, you know, so we were looking at different things. We were looking at introducing the AVOD. I think we were just a little bit ahead of our time and our content providers were just not, they were a little hesitant about what were the rights that we were looking for, worried about devaluing their content, which it really didn't. And I think you can see now with everybody looking to offer an AVOD layer that it doesn't devalue, it just complements and can sit next to the SVOD platforms very um, comfortably. Um, but it was a really interesting learning experience and I've taken a lot away from it that I hopefully can bring into Samsung TV Plus on a positive note. Vancouver-based producer and distributor Amcomri Entertainment was set up seven years ago, building up a catalogue of over 3,500 movie titles through the acquisition of companies including 101 Films and Hollywood Classics. The business moved into television two years ago, establishing Abacus Media Rights with former Q Media Distribution Sales Chief Jonathan Ford heading up the division, which now handles some 5,000 hours of TV programming. Amcomry listed on the Canadian Neo Exchange at the beginning of this year, marking the start of a new five-year plan that has already seen the firm snap up Australian distributor Flame Media and Screen Media in the UK and Ireland. Chief Executive Robert Price, previously Senior Vice President and Managing Director of 20th Century Fox, spoke to me about the firm's expansion plans, how the TV side of its business is set to grow and the way the shift among streamers to ad-supported models is impacting content strategies. So I'm Robert Price, I'm the Chief Exec of Amcomry Entertainment. Uh, Amcomry is a film and TV uh, business. We listed in Canada in, in January. Um, my background is, uh, my whole career has been in, in and around content of various types and forms, so magazines, web, uh, video games, uh, home entertainment uh, with Fox. And now with Amcomry, I've been with Amcomry for just over a year. Uh, started as a non-exec there before we listed. Um, and we're on a really exciting journey actually. You know, we're, we're, we're growing fast. Uh, Abacus, our TV business, is doing brilliantly well uh, and led by Jonathan Ford and he's, he's awesome and a brilliant team. So we're, you know, we're on a path of growth. We have a five-year plan. And just tell us a little bit more about that, that, that strategy, how the company's been built up, um, originally primarily focused on film. Um, we started off, we've been in the film business for, for about over 15 years, so with 101 Film and 101 International. Uh, 101 Film is a UK and Ireland distribution business and sales business. Uh, 101 International is uh, our international business where we, we home our own productions. Um, and then Abacus, the TV business, was uh, started just over two and a half years ago by Jonathan, working in partnership with uh, the team at uh, 101 and with uh, Larry Howard and Paul McGowan. Um, we listed, as I say, in January. 
And um, library content is a big part of, of what you do and how the business has been built up and, and how is that growing alongside production? Yes, yeah, so library is at the heart of what we do. So we, we, we do sales distribution, we do production and we have libraries and we do financing as well. On the library side, we're still building. So this year already we've done three acquisitions in the library, in TV with Flame uh, and then on the film side with Screen Media. Uh, couple of deals we've done with them. So, yeah, library is really important to us. We have over four, nearly 5,000 hours of TV in our library now, and about 3,500 movies in our library. So it's a huge part of what we do. And there is a production element as well, though, but that's primarily focused on film right now, is it? Yeah, on the film side, we've, we've taken conservative steps to build our own slate. So but this year we will have released seven movies that we've either produced primarily ourselves or heavy co-production. On the, t- on, the, on the TV side, we're just stepping into that, that, that area. But on the drama side, and we've been there for a little while on the factual documentary side. So that's it's working out really well for us. And so Jonathan, as you mentioned, and, and Abacus Media, I mean, that business has been built up through uh, the acquisition of some of the assets of, of Q Media Group. Yeah, yes, that's right, yeah. Plus we've done the Flame deal this year, and then Jonathan, obviously, and the team built content and third-party uh, distribution too. And so how do you sort of see the landscape at the moment? Um, obviously, film and TV as industries have been coming closer together. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting, I suppose, a lot of people in film have gone into TV and, and now there are even kind of suggestions that, you know, a lot of the streamers who were driving growth of that, that whole TV series market are sort of getting more keen on, on, on film. You know, there's a very interesting dynamic going on there between the two. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I think um, the business is still quite different. Um, we're, we're finding the TV market is very good for us and very dynamic. So as, as of today, the TV market is very positive. On film, it's a, it's a slower burner for us in terms of what we're doing on the production side. Um, but yeah, it's, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the market going forwards. I mean, obviously things are changing, streamers are changing strategy, just see how that all plays out. But at the moment, we're not seeing any sign of a lack of demand for our content at all. In fact, we're seeing growing demand, on the, particularly on the TV side. And how do you see that streaming landscape, as you say, there's a sort of shift towards the advertiser funding model that, that's happening uh, with Netflix quite soon and others have already adopted that model as well and we've had the rise of the, uh, the AVA players like, like Pluto TV and so forth. So, you know, where are you kind of focused and, uh, you know, which of those models kind of suits you best? Um, we're, we're, we're pragmatic on model. Um, I think on AVOD it is really interesting, but as, as you know, in Europe it's yet to really ignite in massive growth like it has in the US. So we're, we've got high hopes for that. I think um, it'll be interesting to see where people on Netflix get to with the ad funded tiers. I saw the pricing, I think it was going to be £7 a month or $7. I'm interested by that. It'll be interested to see what the take up is. It doesn't seem to me like a dramatically lower price for consumers, so I wonder how they'll respond to that. I do think that from an econ- economic uncertainty is going to have an effect. So logically, I think we all believe that AVOD is going to grow strongly in the next year or so uh, in Europe. What impact do you think that's going to have on content strategies? Because um, there's been some suggestions that, you know, uh, from people that I've been talking to recently, that it means that the, the streamers who have made a virtue of, of doing sort of edgier content and, and, and giving consumers things that they wouldn't get on sort of standard linear TV, they're now going to have to play it a little bit safer to, to get the advertisers on board. I, I think there's a certain logic to that, and I don't think it's necessarily about playing it safe, but I think there will be a, re, a focus on core genre content, you know, as, as the market changes a little bit and risk is reduced slightly. Um, but, you know, the, the, the edgier content comes with more risk, and I think that we're going to go into a period where risk is, people won't want as much risk. And in terms of the sort of the genres that you're focused on, um, you know, can you expand a little bit on that as well? Or it's a very broad catalogue, or are there particular areas of interest? Yeah. So well, for Abacus on the TV side, you know, we're we currently have, we're representing over 100, 100 shows, and about 20% of those shows are drama, uh, the rest are factual and documentary. So we've got a very broad range. Yeah. And so, uh, and that's how we want to build the business. Um, and that's how Jonathan has built the business. So we're, we're happy with that. On the film side, we tend to be more core genre. But we, you know, we've got our biggest release next year actually is a faith-based movie called Left Behind Two, uh, which is the biggest faith-based franchise actually. Like, so over a billion dollars in book sales. So it is. It's a broad church for us. And are you kind of acquiring IP as well to exploit in, in you know in, in, in different multimedia kind of outlets? Uh, not not so much yet, but that that is part of our strategic roadmap. So we'd like to do that as we move forwards.
Interesting. And you, you referenced the uncertainties in the financial markets. It's, it's impossible to, to avoid that. You listed earlier this year. Is it a good time to be on the stock exchange? Um, it, it's not without its challenges, but we're very happy with where we are. We, you know, we, we're patient. We've got a five-year plan, as I said. Um, circumstances always change, don't they? And it's very hard to predict capital markets. We've got to deliver our strategy, which we are doing, deliver our numbers to the market, and we'll, we'll get success from that. So we're not, we're not agitated by that at all. It's, you know, it's just a market background. So in terms of that five-year plan, you're 10 months into it. Um, what can you tell us uh, you know, about uh, the four years and uh, two months that are left to run? <laughs> well, it's, we're going to be busy. You know? we've already, our, you know, we're growing strongly already from the existing business. We've added, through uh, acquisitions this year, as I said, three, three, three different things. And our plan is more acquisitions as we scale up. And I think we, you know, we'll, we'll continue to expand internationally, both in TV and film. So that's the heart of, of the growth strategy we have. And again, are we talking library content or are we talking production as well? You, you referenced the fact that you've got a, a, a small kind of production uh, capability at the moment, but you know, it, it is growing that as sort of a core part of the strategy? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I mean, we will opportunistically pick up libraries as acquisitions if they're available. And yeah, we are investing in production and we want to expand that as, as we go forward. So yeah, absolutely more production for us and particularly we'd like to do more in the TV side of on production. And given that financial uncertainty however I mean you know it, it does make deal making very hard as well not not just being on the stock market yourself but um, with wild currency fluctuations and inflation I mean I guess there are opportunities somewhere the UK is looking pretty cheap in some respects I suppose with the with the pound but um, you know that's going to have a, a major bearing, presumably, upon your strategy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. We, um, I think it's worth saying that the company's got a very successful history of acquiring and adding value to the, to the company. We do believe there's plenty of opportunity for us on the acquisition side, and getting access to funds, given the success that the business has, it won't be, it won't be a challenge. But, of course, we have to be careful and make sure we have the right targets. And that, and that applies to film and, and TV. So given your, your background at Fox, it must be fascinating the last few years to look at the studios and see the way that they've all pivoted um, towards streaming and sort of increasingly warehoused content within their own walled gardens, uh, you know, to power those streamers. How do you see that market? And also there are sort of, you know, suggestions that some of them are, are, are kind of easing up a little bit now as the, the, the competition heats up. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I've, during my time at Fox, I was at Fox from 2010 till uh, 2019. It was, the change from, from a home media perspective was just remarkable. It's really interesting to me to see what they've done with uh, theatrical windows, for instance, on the movie side. In terms of warehousing the content, I think it's interesting, but I, I think we, if the economic effects we're seeing play out the way that people are predicting, I think, as I said earlier, I think consumers are going to start making choices. And there's a lot of services. I wonder what happens there, you know, you know, feels like there isn't room for us all to have 10 subscriptions. Uh, you might as well just have Sky again. So uh, I'm interested to see where that goes. I think the clear winners are there already, you know, like Disney and, and Netflix. Um, is there room for everybody? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The good news for us is that the demand, the consumer appetite for content remains. Consumer cons consumption of content is still very, very high. And uh, not all content could be super high budget, you know, the, the services need a mix of content. And we believe very strongly that our, that our content is super effective at driving audience and super efficient from a cost point of view. That puts us in a great place. And those costs of production have been soaring as well and people have been talking about this sort of peak TV moment arriving at some point. The, uh, you know, aside from the talent costs, there's been the COVID premium on production and, and, and now the energy crisis that's sort of sweeping uh, Europe and, and, and elsewhere is also, you know, likely to have an impact as well. Yes, of course. Yeah, production costs are increasing. You know, with inflation running at ten percent, basically everywhere around the world, that's inevitable. Um, again, for us, that's an, I, I see we see that as an opportunity because we're very efficient at making content. So we feel that that, that puts us in a, in a, we remain in a good place. Boundless is the epic tale of the first circumnavigation of the globe 500 years ago by Portuguese adventurer Ferdinand Magellan. 
Described as the biggest independent production in the history of Spanish TV, the six-part series for national public broadcaster RTV and Amazon Prime Video debuted this summer. Produced by Miguel Menendez for Mono Films, together with Kilima Media and Fullwell 73, the show stars Money Heist's Alvaro Morte and Westworld's Rodrigo Santoro and is directed by Simon West. ZDF Studios is handling international distribution. Menendez and West spoke to me about making the show an epic undertaking in itself, why the story of Magellan has never been told on screen before, how streamers have made productions of such scale possible, and why this may not be set to last. Miguel Menendez, I'm a Spanish producer. Basically, I used to do feature films and, uh, and a few TV series, and um, feature films like uh, Loving Pablo or The Paperboy or La Trinchera Infinita, and now it's Boundless, is the, the next project. Hi, I'm Simon West, I'm the director of Boundless, and uh, I've done feature films and TV, but uh, this is my first big limited series for uh, one of the big streamers, Amazon. Tell us about Boundless, it's a, a massive project, the biggest budget Spanish drama series, I believe, in history. Well, I always say that this is the, the biggest budget TV series for independent TV series because sometimes I mean you're talking about Netflix or Amazon or Enels probably they have bigger budgets but the, for independent producer is the biggest budget uh, ever in Spain we've been developing this project for so many years and until we we get in the same track with Simon and, and when when Simon get on board definitely we, we decided to do it and it was uh, 2016 and then we start uh, Soft Prey in 2019. We stopped one year for uh, COVID and then did it finally. And for those who might not be familiar with the history, give us the very quick version of uh, what's covered in Boundless and, and, and Magellan's uh, incredible voyage. I think it's, uh, it's the, the story is very simple. It's the first circumnavigation of the globe uh, 500 years ago. Five ships with uh, 265 people left Spain and only 18 people came back alive after three years of three years full of adventure, treachering, uh, hunger, death and, and adventure. And why do you think it's not been tackled before? I mean, it's an immense story to try and tell and, and uh, everything that that entails, presumably. That's why it hasn't been done. Well, that, that, that was a surprise. I, I was surprised that no one has ever approached uh, this project or this story in a, in a fiction. Uh, that's why we decided to, to to go for it, you know, that's a real surprise. I, I always say that if this story was American, we have a hundred TV series and uh, 20 future films and for sure. But uh, I don't know, maybe in Spain we are not prepared to to tell about our own history. And, and I think it's uh, it was the right opportunity, especially because this year, 2022 is the fifth internet of the achievement, so is, is the right moment to do it. And how about you, Simon? How did you come on board the project, and you know how much did you know about Magellan before you did? Well, um, 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 Miguel came to me with the script um, about six years ago, and um, you know I'm a huge history buff, and I love anything to do with ships. I love all the uh, high seas adventures movies. So this was sort of right in my literal wheelhouse, as they say. And um, so I you know, jumped on the idea. I knew the name of Magellan and um, a vague his part of the history of the Magellan Straits in South America, but I didn't really know that much about it. But of course, as soon as you come onto something like this, you have to do all the research. And I you know, read the books and, and all that. And uh, it is an incredible story um, that uh, hadn't been told. And I think it's also may not be told because it was kind of politically complicated in a way because Magellan was actually Portuguese and he tried to sell this mission to the Portuguese king who refused and so he went to the Spanish king which obviously wasn't popular with the Portuguese and also the Spanish never really trusted him I don't think so they begrudgingly gave him this uh, the finance for this mission and he actually pitched it to the king of Spain who was actually Belgian who you know? Who knows how good his Spanish was anyway? So it's very complicated in terms of uh, you know the the country allegiances of the people at that time, and um, so the King of Spain you know surrounded Magellan with a bunch of Spanish captains on the other ships to sort of keep an eye on him, and so there was a lot of tension on the mission. So it wasn't just about 
trying to beat the elements, trying to do something that nobody else had done before, trying not to drop off the edge of the world that they thought could happen. It was also about how not to get attacked from a mutiny from your own crew. And so the tension was sort of built into it for a perfect drama. And they just provided, you know, a filmmaker with every possible story scenario. So, you know, there's mutinies, there's uh, executions, um, there's battles with indigenous people on various islands around the world, as well as just facing the elements and not knowing where you are, not even knowing how big the oceans are. They didn't even know how big the Pacific was because they never intended to go to the Pacific. So for me, it was just a, a huge story that was completely true. Everything in it is true. We didn't have to invent anything. We sort of had to condense it down to fit into six episodes because three years is a long time. And, you know, out of five ships that set off and, and two, 249 men, 18 came back on one ship. So the hardest thing was trying to compress it into six episodes. And, um, you know, what about the actual production of the show? You say it was kind of in gestation from 2016. You began working on it. So uh, a production of this proportions and as well amidst a, a pandemic at some point as well you know what were the kind of challenges that you faced and you know tell us about some of the locations and and the sets you know it, it must have been quite an endeavor in itself well the biggest challenge is that we had to go around the world without traveling around the world which is this is fiction so we had to recreate uh, a lot of things in Dominican Republic like Philippines uh, or Brazil uh, a few other territories and then we had to shoot the whole series in a ship but without shooting in the real ocean which is a nightmare so I mean Simon can explain much better than me because we spent a hard time preparing this this movie but at the end of the story we had to make decisions like uh, putting in a stage and put all the blue screen around and but it was big challenge yeah. Well, yeah, one of the hardest things was how to shoot um, a story that went around the world and in all these exotic countries and, um, you know, convince the audience that we had gone around the world. Um, and so we chose the Dominican Republic because it had uh, a wide variety of locations um, for the more tropical parts of the journey. And then we shot in places that you wouldn't expect, like northern Spain in the winter actually looks like Patagonia. And so we were able to cheat a lot of places to look like we'd gone around the world. Um, and then a lot of it was shot on stage um, because most of the story is on board a ship. And so we spent a lot of time making sure that this was going to be convincing. So we, uh, my DP, Shelley Johnson, designed this whole lighting rig that meant we could uh, basically choose wherever we were in the, in the world and whatever time of day and just press a few buttons and the lighting would become that. So we never had to move a light or um, start from scratch. So I could go from one side of the world in the other lighting-wise um, in the, you know, the flick of a switch. And this made the production so much easier. And so a lot of um, what would have been you know, um, impossible to do at, at sea, in the real ocean, to do to really dramatic scenes where the actors are trying to emote and in the real ocean you know you'd be just basically trying to stand up and not get blown over the side and the weather would always be wrong so we created a lot of it on stage with you know uh, wind machines obviously and rain machines um, and that was the hardest thing to make that very convincing but with technology these days you know with the help of CGI and a lot of practical effects on on uh, stage, which is something I, you know, I picked up over the years, how to make stuff look real, even though it's shot on stage. Um, I think it's pretty convincing. And then, of course, we did actually shoot on the ocean with uh, the now Victoria, which is a replica, which is an exact replica of, of the ship that went around the world. And, in, and it, it itself actually went around the world. And the crew on that ship um, who sailed around the world um, are used as extras. And so they were completely au fait with how to raise the sails and throw the ropes and the commands to shout. And so they are the crew on, in the series. So they're made up to look like 16th century sailors, but they're totally authentic because these guys actually really did sail around the world and uh, on that ship. And also I used them as technical advisors so that um, anytime I had a question about what would happen here, what would you do there, how would you do this, 
they knew it because they'd actually done it. So I wasn't in a void of like, I'm just making this stuff up. I was surrounded by real sailors who had done the, the, this expedition. And you mentioned the actors there, obviously. Um, tell us about the, the cast and, and how you put that together and you know the kind of chemistry that existed between them and, and how they've sort of helped elevate the whole thing. Well, at the very beginning, this, this, um, this show was in English, but some point we decided to, to make it in Spanish because we want to transmit the credibility with the real language. I mean, the Portuguese people speak Portuguese and the Spanish people speak Spanish, so we need to find a Magellan with a, a Portuguese-speaking actor that connects with the, when, they, when he speaks Portuguese, has to speak the, port, the real Portuguese, not Brazilian. At the same time, they had to speak Spanish with an accent, a real accent, not to make it um, artificially. And number one in number one in the in the world right now, I mean, Portuguese-speaking actor is Rodrigo Santoro. They say yes, it matches perfectly with the, with the character. And Alvaro Morte is a great name because of Money Haste, and uh, also fits perfectly with the with Elcano, which is another character. So we have the the best cast possible and they say yes and that was great. It's interesting earlier you, you referenced the project and you, you described it as a movie and given oh, yeah. given both of your backgrounds in, in film you know and, and given the way that the industry the television business has changed and the movie industry have changed and sort of come closer together you, you still think of this as a, as a six-part movie. Well this is, is in my opinion, this is a this is a movie. We shoot it as a movie. We shoot it. We don't shoot it uh, one episode and then the next episode. We shoot the whole content uh, and we split it through the through the script for sure. But the, we shoot it as a movie, as a four-hour movie. And um, as I said before, I think the our world, our industry has changed a lot. And movie, I mean, future film and TV series live in the same place and and right now we are more ready the audience are more ready to receive uh, future productions in a TV uh, rather than five six years ago given your background with with Conair and, and Lara Croft Team Raider as well I mean huge Hollywood blockbusters and and since then you've done plenty of, of, of TV series as well you know but how do you feel that that kind of shift has has kind of taken place over the, the, the past kind of decade, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, I just uh, treated this like any other feature film that I do. I didn't really consciously think of it as a, a what screen it was going to end up on. In fact, I just shot it in the same epic way that I think this story deserved, but also it's sort of my style is, is on a big canvas. So I just um, behaved the way I do on a feature film. And so uh, I, I probably forgot as I was shooting that this was ever going to be a series. It was just shot as a movie and then at some point during editorial we divided it up into episodes but it was never on the set thinking this is the end of episode one and this is the start of episode two it was just one big you know great story and um, you know that's my experience and that's how I shoot. So it's already out on Amazon and it's in plenty of territories all around the world they haven't taken global rights to it which is interesting um, and, and ZDF Studios is, is representing it and, and uh, selling it in other countries but the streamers have obviously had a massive impact and, and for you as well it must have been great to, to get Amazon on board. Yeah because it's not only as a business model I mean we we all love to, to, to finance correctly the projects and Amazon help us a lot with this financing. But also you make content to show it to the audience and as, as much audience you can get, more satisfying, more satisfaction for you. And um, especially in this story, because this story has to be, we, we, we definitely be strong to tell the audience about this uh, unknown story. Nobody, nobody, nobody knows about Elcano. And, as Simon says, Magellan, you know about Magellan, but you don't really know what happened. So I think it's, it's a mandatory to, to tell, you know, to show it to the, to, through the world and through Amazon, we, we made it, that's, that's great. The influence of the streamers, how has it impacted your job, would you say, on a sort of a day-to-day -day basis in the industry, I suppose? Well, it's sort of opened up um, production in a way because there's so many more outlets for stories and, and also, you know, in one way, we were affected by it because this was conceived originally as a feature film, 
uh, in English. And then, um, you know, Miguel, uh, the producer, went round trying to finance it as a movie, and it's very difficult to finance an historical drama like this, especially a, a, one that, again, isn't set in America or even in the UK. And so um, when Amazon came along, um, they loved it. And so it gave us, um, uh, you know, the ability to make this, which it probably would not have been made otherwise, um, certainly as a feature film. And so. I, you know, welcome this streaming um, input hugely because this series wouldn't have got made in any form if there hadn't been this new surge of uh, streamers coming in to help finance kind of more serious but entertaining drama that movies have sort of stopped doing. They're either doing the huge blockbuster um, comic book series or, you know, the odd comedy, but basically any serious drama and any of drama of any length as well, you have to really go to a streamer now to get that to get that financed. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that it's arriving at a time it's historical drama, it's factual, but at a time where historical fiction, I guess, in the form of Game of Thrones and, and Lord of the Rings, you know, the most expensive TV series ever made, both arriving at the same time with the Game of Thrones spin-off. So. Um, they're fantasy, they're fantasy, yeah. but, um, you know, in, in terms of the uh, appetite for epic yeah. uh, productions, you know, the, the, you're sort of arriving in that, in the midst of all of that as well. You know? yeah. Well, also, hopefully, people are buying bigger and bigger screens for their houses, so you can actually shoot in a movie style and people can appreciate it because everyone's watching on bigger and bigger screens at home, which, um, you know, we're meeting halfway, basically. We're, you know, bringing the movies into people's houses instead of just, you know, shrinking everything down to a TV format. What about the, the costs of production? It's been a, a theme for a number of years in the business. The streamers have pushed up competition for talent and, and uh, COVID had added a kind of an additional premium on producing as well. Now there's a, a, a war going on uh, not too far from from where we are and that's having huge ramifications um, for, for all of us and, and including you know the cost of production I guess from from an energy kind of standpoint you know how do you see things at the minute and and the challenges of, of financing these big-scale productions seems to be just getting bigger and bigger well I think uh, right now there's a big competition between the streamers that's a reality and that's uh, creates uh, like a fiction in our industry because it's not, I mean, they're, every time is they're putting more money, they're, they're fighting for the talent, everyone. So if you are a great talent, they pay you more and more and more. A technical crew agree more and more and more. So it's like something is going to explode at some point. And um, it's great for the industry right now because everyone is working and uh, there is a lot of uh, things to do, produce. But uh, I don't know, maybe this big crisis coming over worldwide uh, is going to affect our industry and uh, we'll see what happens. But, uh, obviously, I think we, the streamer will start reducing money, the budget, uh, it affects the production, affects the people, uh, affects technical crew, affects the talent and um, we have to convert it ourselves again, again and again. You know, that's, I mean, our industry is always in crisis from 100 years ago and and right now it's like we are living in a in a in a dream, but the, it's not. I, my opinion is that the, it's not going to be anymore in the next years. Uh, we have to come back to to originals and um, and uh, and start with the and, and start producing as a crisis as always we have done before. Is that your sense of things as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, ever since I've been in the business, everyone says, oh, you should have been here 10 years ago. That's when it was really great. And I say that to, you know, young filmmakers who come up and say, and they say, oh, everyone says it's really bad now. I said, they've been saying that for, you know, probably 100 years. But in my experience, I've, it's always better 10 years ago. But somehow, you know, the, the business always survives. People make great films or TV and uh, it goes on and on. I mean, you just can't stop it. People love watching entertainment. And we'll just find a way around it, you know, we'll make it in a different style or make it, um, you can, you know, solve all these problems by uh, clever thinking. And obviously sometimes the less money you have, the, the more inventive you have to be. And actually it helps production and you get a better product 
because you were more frugal and you were, had to think about everything more. If you have too much money, it can be um, you know a burden. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I've never complained about having too much money. But um, quite often, if you know, you do get a better outcome if you do take the time to say what you know is what's the best way to do this, not the most expensive way to do this. So what's next for, for both of you after this uh, the show has kind of finished its run? Well, I, I, I will, I'm, I'm preparing, I'm developing, I mean, I'm in software with a comedy, I say a, a small future film, comedy, Spanish, typical, easy. I don't, I don't want to say easy project, but much easier than Baldes for sure. So I need that, I need, I need now to come back to this future, small future film. And a couple of uh, TV series, Spanish TV series, also not say easy, but easier than Boundless. And uh, probably next year we'll start thinking about new dreams, you no know, new big project. And um, I need a, I need a little time to to, to think about next uh, challenge. Well, I think we're gonna uh, we're gonna do a sequel to Boundless, aren't we, Miguel? <laughs> we're gonna. Say, like what, hap- what happened it. after they got back? <laughs> but, uh, I, think there's a, I think there's a sequel in there because Elcano actually went on an expedition, tried to recreate what they did on the expedition afterwards. But, um, uh, you know, it, uh, this production, I think I had to work in like five or six different languages at least. So it's quite an undertaking. So I'm hoping the next thing I do, I can have a little break and do something in English. But then uh, maybe come back and do Elcano, the second, the return of Elcano (laughs) 2 or whatever. So we'll have to see. Tel Aviv-based producer Tadmor Entertainment, set up four years ago by Israeli oil, gas and telecommunications magnate Gideon Tadmor, rebranded recently under the new name Sipur and renewed an output deal with MGM Television. Co-founder and chief executive Emilio Schenker spoke to me at MIPCOM in Cannes recently about its slate of projects including Documentary, The Devil's Confession, The Lost Eichmann Tapes and a new dating reality format called Hungry for Love which tests participants' appetites for food and romance and for which the firm is seeking a distributor. My name is Emilio Schenker and I'm the founder and the CEO of Sipur which by the way in Hebrew means story and so we founded this company in Israel, even though we look at ourselves as an international studio, but our heart is in Israel. And uh, the company was formerly known as, as Tadmore, so just give us a little bit more about the history and um, you know, some of the shows that uh, the company is best known for. So uh, Tadmore Entertainment was actually built by uh, Gideon Tadmore, my business partner. Um, who is an oil and gas tycoon and one of the most, uh, let's say, one of the most richest people in Israel, but also an amazing and a smart businessman that is responsible for the oil and gas revolution in Israel, for the energy, energetic revolution in Israel, um, which uh, made a huge difference um, for the Israeli economy. By the way, I heard once Bill Clinton said that he can divide the Israeli economy to before and after Gideon Tadmor. Um, so he's, he's a great man and he has a passion for film and TV, so he established his own production company which was focusing on indie movies in New York. And the company did uh, some great movies such as Norman uh, with Richard Gere by Joseph Sitter. And maybe what we are most known for is Swiss Army Men uh, by the Daniels that uh, did, I think, the last movie was the most indie, the most profitable indie movie in the history or something like that. And what about television? So when I joined forces with Gideon uh, three years ago, I was um, kind of like an indie producer in Israel, not very successful to be honest. And um, I was I was looking I was looking for the next for the next big thing for me because I realized two things when I got to Gideon. The first one is that the Israeli market, in many many ways, is declining. There is a big economical. Uh, um, um, a big economical crisis in the Israeli market. Uh, the networks don't have always the money to produce the shows that they want. But on the other hand, I saw that the Israeli talents, my friends, my writers, directors, are going and becoming more and more successful in the international market. In addition, the international market was changing rapidly in the last five years. So I thought, saw that as an opportunity to build the first Israeli studio which means a studio that will have in one hand 
the financial arm, the financial arm to finance shows, to help the broadcasters in Israel and the, and the channels to finance their shows. On the other hand, to have a very strong international partner that can distribute those shows for the international market. And obviously, all of that with the great writers and directors that exist in Israel, my friends. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the market's been booming for, for, for 10 years or, or, or more in many other ways and, and uh, has become famous as an exporter both of uh, uh, formats, entertainment formats and uh, drama particularly. So what's your focus? So my heart, to be really honest, sits on drama. I, I was in film school for so many years and I was also a director and writer. Um, but our company is, doing, is focusing actually on three things documentaries, high-end documentaries like the Eichmann documentary that we just did, drama, drama TV shows, and obviously also movies, um, and uh, also formats of non-scripted. Tell us about that documentary. Wow, so the Eichmann documentary actually began with uh, my dear friend and the director Yariv Mosel um, that came to us with a huge headline, which we didn't know that it's, if it's true. He told us that um, there is tapes by Adolf Eichmann that made a full confession about his deeds during the Second World War and the Holocaust. Now you have to understand, Nazis have always denied their role in the Holocaust. Every Nazi that they found and put to trial, for example in the Nuremberg trials, but not only, all of them said the same thing. A, we were small cogs in the machine, and B, we don't, we are not responsible. We, got, we just received orders. And Eichmann was exactly like the rest of them. When the government of Israel and the Mossad, the, secret, the Israeli secret service, kidnapped Eichmann from Argentina and brought him to trial to Israel, he said the same thing. I am not responsible. What do you want from my life? I'm not a war criminal. I am a free man and I'm innocent. Um, and just imagine that in the, mid in the middle of the trial, when Gideon Hauser, the prosecutor, needed a smoking gun to convict him, there was a, a huge article published on Life magazine in, with a full confession of Adolf Eichmann. And in this article, it's mentioned that it's based on 70 hours of tapes, of recorded tapes, of a journalist named William Zassen that recorded Adolf Eichmann five years, five years before in Argentina, in which he makes a full confession about his deeds in the, in the war. And after 60 years, we found the tapes. And we did a huge documentary that I think it's, it's, it's really a masterpiece. Um, we just finished it and it was uh, broadcast in Israel. And now it's actively sell, sold by MGM here in MIP. MGM, you have a relationship with them. So uh, how does that work? And uh, I think, believe you just renewed it as well. Yes. So we started this relationship with MGM with uh, uh, the president of MGM, Steve Stark and uh, Mark Burnett and Brian Edwards, um, which was an amazing, amazing opportunity for us. Um, I admire those people. They are really the best of the best uh, uh, of the producers in the industry. And we had, we had a great amount of luck to be, to be partnering with MGM. And I think that this relationship was extremely, extremely good for both sides. Um, and a few months ago, we renewed the first look deal for two more years. So we are very happy. Obviously, uh, Amazon acquired them a few months ago, so the relationship is changing as everything is changing. Um, and uh, and let's see, let's see where we where we are. And you've also got a series as well, I believe, that's going out through Telepool. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So it's another documentary that we've done with Telepool, with uh, Westbrook in the in the U.S. and Telepool in Europe, um, and it tells the story of the uh, terrorist attack in the seventy in the seventy two Olympic Games in Munich. And we're telling a chilling, really a chilling a drama. It's a docudrama. It's, it's, it's a minute-by-minute minute thriller in which we are uh, recreating the events of this, this huge tragedy that happened uh, in 72. And you've also got a format called Hungry for Love, I believe, as well, which is launching. Yes. The, our format will be launching in December this year. It's a brilliant format. It's a dating show. Uh, and we're doing this with our dear friends at Stampede, and that are an American studio, uh, Greg Silverman and Chris Bosco. Um, this format we set up with channel, uh, a hot entertainment channel in Israel, um, led by Rinat Klein and Slutsky Productions. Um, it's a sh brilliant, brilliant show 
that was created by Zippy Rosenblum, our head of non-scripted. And it's actually combining between two passions, right? So the hunger for love and the hunger for food. And the basic format says that if you're hungry for, love, for food, you go and eat, right? But if you're hungry for love, sometimes you have things that are stopping you. So this brilliant format that was created by Zippy links between the two needs. So if you are hungry for love and you can't do anything about it, you will stay also hungry and you will not be able to eat until you find a date to make yourself, to, to have dinner with. Wow, uh, that's, uh, that is, yeah, it's, that's funny. So um, uh, tell us about where things are at with that show at the minute, you know, and, and, you know, what you're hoping of it for the next sort of, you know, 12 months, I guess. So we are actually just, I just saw yesterday the second, the second episode. It's uh, advanced rough cut and it's brilliant. We all love it. Um, we still don't have a distributor yet. Nobody saw nothing. I mean, it's only us and the channel. Uh, hopefully we will be able to take it to the market very very soon but we are actively looking for a distributor for this format that we believe that has a potential for 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 selling in many many countries and what's your sort of overall sense of the marketplace at the moment obviously the business uh, the world has been through a tumultuous time over the past few years but uh, in amongst all of that streaming has been booming and the demand for great content doesn't seem to be diminishing anytime soon. You know, there are suggestions that perhaps some of the streamers are slowing up, you know, their spending on shows as, as budgets begin to tighten in amongst a, a very complicated and, and unstable kind of uh, outlook, I guess, you know, financially and uh, geopolitically as well. There's a lot in that question. <laughs> so I'll try to give you my two cents. Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something. Gideon Tadmor, who is uh, the chairman of, of, of Sipu, um, always said that you are always too small to change the macro, okay? It doesn't matter if you are Disney or uh, Amazon or even both of them together. You can't really change the big picture. So from our perspective in our small country of Israel, the only thing that we're trying to be focused is on making great content. And I believe, and I tell you something, my hairdresser, um, which is a good friend of mine, but he's my hairdresser. As you can see, my hair is very beautiful. So my hairdresser always tells me, I'm the best businessman when I'm doing the best haircuts. So this is my two cents about, about the industry. I will be the best businessman when we will do the best shows. And if we will create great content, I hope that we will not have problems selling them because it's all about the content. That's easy to say when you've got a multi-billionaire behind you though. So, you know, it. Um, First of all, I don't only, only have a multi-billionaire behind me. I have much more than a multi-billionaire behind me. I have the biggest bank in Israel, Poalim. I have the biggest insurance company, Klal. And I have the big, uh, the, one of the biggest investment firms in Israel, which is called IBI. So, yes, I, am, I have a huge backing. But you know why I have a huge backing? Because we create great things. So we create great things, and then the investors came. It's not the opposite way around. So... It doesn't change my, my, my answer. If we will do great content and we will partner with the best creators, I am happy and it, the shows will be sold. And that's my advice to myself and that's my advice to, you know, I'm also, I'm also teaching in a, in, a, in a film school in Israel and that's always my advice to my students. Just create great shows. Just write brilliant scripts. That's it. That's our job, to create great content. That's it. That's what I want to do. One of the challenges that the industry faces is the, uh, the, the talent shortage as well. Interesting that you, you reference your work at a film school as well and bringing through new writers and new talent. Um, you know, competition for Israeli writers must be intense and, uh, you know, the big names get snapped up very quickly. So, you know, what are you doing as a company to nurture the, the next generation of uh, creatives? So first of all, I'll tell you something. We, I, I am, as, as a former writer-director, you know, I retired from it and I'm not, I'm not actively a writer and a director. I always, as a writer and a director, had a had dream, had a dream that the producer will come and will help me and will partner with me and, and that's how I'm trying to act as a producer I we are we're we are, we are developing so much stuff with young writers and young directors and and you know it's a huge risk to to put your time and efforts on on young talents that you know that you don't know if they sell but I, I am a real believer in that 
because you have to you have to create the next generation of talent and we're doing this on a daily basis and regarding um, the successful writers I'll tell you something about it too I also think that they are looking for they are not always looking for the most the richer part the richest partner and they are not only always looking for the one that has you know the most acclaimed producer they are looking for someone who can make things happen who has the energy of making the things happen and I think that we in Sipur me and my team we have that as a young company that has that is a very very ambitious we have a lot of energy and we are giving this energy to our talent so we work with the top talents in Israel and again it's not about the money money is easy Ma to get money is easy to get real talent to get real uh, to, to make things happen that's not the easy thing to do that's the tough thing to do and we make it or at least try that's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.